you're living with it, you're coping with it, you're adapting with it. And that's what we mean by living with obesity. You don't say it's an obese person. You're living with this chronic disease and you're going to have barriers. What we need is to know when to go back for more help. Welcome to another edition of the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Eamon Kyo. On this episode, we'll be talking about obesity, the stigma and biases associated with this chronic illness, and the real impact this has on people living with obesity. We'll also be discussing the efforts being made to increase understanding of this disease and the role we all have in eliminating weight, bias and stigma. Joining me to talk through this and more are Dr. Jean O'Connell, consultant, endocrinologist and clinical lead at the Centre for Obesity Management, St. Colm Kills and St. Vincent's University Hospitals, and Susie Burney, lead for the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity, the ICPO, a patient-led volunteer organisation. You're both very welcome. Thanks, Eamon. Great to be here. Jane, before we start talking about the stigma of obesity, just for the benefit of our listeners, could I ask you to briefly explain what obesity is? Because I think many people may not realize that obesity is actually a chronic disease or a long-term illness. Yes, Eamon. Obesity is a disease because like other diseases, there is malfunction in how the body is dealing with energy balance or weight. Our brain controls many critical body processes. So keeping our body temperature within a very narrow range, keeping our lungs breathing in and out and our hearts beating. And our brain is doing this continuously without us having any conscious control, without us thinking about it. So our brains are also controlling our body weight without us thinking about it. And this controls how much food we eat and how much is then stored as fat. If this process becomes dysregulated or if it's not functioning correctly, we have the disease of obesity. In addition to that, the human body is programmed to resist weight loss. So even if somebody with obesity manages to lose some weight, it's actually very difficult for them to keep that weight off. The body has very effective compensation mechanisms. So as soon as the body senses some weight loss, hormone and other signals change within the body to make the person more hungry, to make them feel less full and to lower their metabolism. So they're now burning less calories. This is why weight that was lost with great difficulty can bounce back so quickly. It's like the effort it takes to stretch out an elastic band, but then it snaps back so quickly. So it's a constant challenge or a battle. Exactly, exactly. And that's why we describe it as a chronic relapsing disease because people will gain and lose weight or lose and gain weight. And it's complex because there's so many factors that influence weight and energy balance in the human body. So the causes and contributing factors can be different for different people. Yeah. I noticed there when you were explaining obesity that you didn't mention the body mass index or BMI. Is that a useful way of determining if someone has obesity? Body mass index or BMI is an index of a person's weight and height. So it's actually useful as a screening tool to indicate if someone is at increased risk of having obesity. But it doesn't tell you if someone has obesity. It tells us the size of a person's body, but it doesn't tell you about their health. Scientific research over the last few decades has moved us away from a focus that is exclusively on weight or BMI. The science tells us that obesity is only present when someone has impairment of their health or health problems. 
And that can be physical, psychological, emotional, or functional health. So if a person has excess weight or a high BMI, but they don't have any health problems, they don't have obesity. It's still important that they focus on healthy lifestyle, just as all people need to try to live a healthy lifestyle to prevent or delay onset of obesity. But that person does not need treatment in the same way that a person who has obesity. So Jean, can I ask you just how many people in Ireland are currently living with obesity? If we use body mass index alone, the surveys tell us that one in four adults are living with obesity in Ireland. It would be good if we also knew how many of those one in four people have health problems because of their excess weight, as that would be more accurate if we, if we consider the, the definition of obesity. The other issue is that that data was collected in 2018 to 2019. So we haven't yet seen the impact of the COVID pandemic and indications are that the numbers of people affected by this disease are likely to be even higher now. But for now, these are the numbers we have. And I suppose the important message is that one in four adults means this is a very common disease. So for most people listening today, it's affecting a family member or a friend or someone they work with or themselves. Okay. Much you've described there. It is very complex. There's an awful lot going on. It's fair to say there's a lot of misunderstanding about obesity in Ireland or really, I suppose, worldwide. And Susie, could you share your experience of living with obesity? Yeah, I think we all know somebody who struggles either with overweight or obesity, and we can sometimes get confused between the two. And we know that people maybe with overweight don't like the word obesity and it, it actually scares them. Yeah. But the difference being is it is still upsetting for whoever is living with that. But if I give an example of my friend who has had four children and after each child, she would say, I need to lose some weight. And she can do that without treatment. She can do that without even support. She changes what she needs to change in her lifestyle. My mother would be the same. She needs to lose one stone, always talking about this one stone if I could lose it. Mm. She doesn't need treatment. But for myself living with obesity, it was on a bigger scale where I was gaining and losing multiple times throughout my life. And then it became evident I needed treatment. And I think that's the difference when people are scared about the word obesity is they think it's it's at their fault. And we'll get into talking about the stigma of that, but it, yeah. it's not their fault. Yeah. And just before we move on to the stigma, I just wanted to stay with this for a minute because I think it's really important. Just that difference between overweight and, and gaining a few pounds and losing and obesity. So we talk about eating less and moving more, but I think you were saying it's more than that when it comes to obesity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the main misunderstanding where people mistakenly think it's just this simple problem of having enough willpower yeah. or that some people don't have enough discipline or in some cases that they're not finding the right diet or they're not trying hard enough to make changes. And you often hear the term, you just have to, as in you just have to eat less or you just have to exercise more. And sometimes people think that because they lost a few pounds following a particular diet. So they think, oh, if somebody else does this, it'll work for them. But as we were saying, everybody's completely different. Yeah. And we don't have this approach with other diseases. So one of the best examples I think of is with high blood pressure. So if somebody comes to me with high blood pressure, I'll say to them, if, you know, if it's, it's mild, it's just a little bit higher than it should be. I'll say, well, maybe you should try cutting back on salt in your diet, try to do a bit more activity, maybe give up smoking. If you're, if you're smoking, do all those healthy lifestyle things to try to reduce your blood pressure. 
Now, if they come back to me in three months and their blood pressure has not improved, it's actually gone higher. I won't tell them to go away and just try harder. Mm. I'll recognize that they have tried with lifestyle, but it wasn't enough. And now we need to add in medication. We need to support professionally with treatment and effective treatments. So we need to apply the same rules as we do to other chronic diseases to obesity. Okay. Moving it on to talk about the stigma of obesity and what we mean by that. Maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on the different types of stigma. Yeah, and I think there are some terms that are used interchangeably. So we've bias, we've stigma, we've discrimination. Yeah. So weight bias is our own individual personal beliefs about obesity and about people living in larger bodies. So, for example, if I'm thinking that somebody with obesity is lazy or lacking in willpower, that's my own negative view. That's a bias. Weight stigma refers to social stereotypes that are actually very deeply rooted within our society and it'll influence my biases. And then that can be found in many areas of society. So in in healthcare settings, in schools, in workplaces. Discrimination happens then if we act on biases or social stereotypes and we treat people differently or we treat people unfairly. They're kind of very overlapping, but you'll hear those words used to describe similar ideas. Also, just to mention on bias, We have very explicit or overt bias where, so if I say somebody with obesity is lazy or lacking willpower, in a way that's potentially easier to address because we can have a conversation about it. Mm. But the harder bias to address, which is also very common, is implicit or subconscious bias. So that's at a very subconscious level. I'm not even aware that I have that bias. It's been formed by my upbringing, the society I live in, the media I'm exposed to. And the beliefs I have, even though I believe I'm not biased, but if I have that subconscious bias, it will influence how I behave and treat someone. So in the healthcare setting, we see that with many healthcare professionals who have implicit weight bias, and they've been shown to spend less time in consultations with people with obesity, perform less screening and investigations for serious diseases, and blame every symptom or problem on the person's weight. Yeah. And Susie, you had an example of that as well, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. Well, unfortunately, it's more than one example. And when you hear what Jean has just gone through to explain the different types, if you imagine in one given day experiencing many of those. So I'll give a quick example. I had a hospital appointment to check out my kidneys. And from the moment I left the house, going to get the bus, I was in pain standing. I get on the bus and nobody will sit beside you and they're throwing you dirty looks. And then you get into the hospital and you find that the department is at the very back. And by the time you've got there, you're struggling. I'm late at this stage and I'm asked to give a sample and I can't fit in the cubicle. I can't close the door and the nurse is annoyed with me. This is now my problem that I don't fit in their cubicle. So I have to go and find a wheelchair accessible toilet and I come back and they don't have a cuff big enough to take my blood pressure. And then I go in to do the test and I'm lying on the bed and she uses the device and she says, oh, we can't find your kidneys properly. There's too much fat here. We can't do the test. You'll have to go. And I can remember her face to this day. I was about 22 years old and I'm now 48. And That is the day of it, that by the time I return to go home and I'm doing the return trip home on the bus and all the experiences, I didn't get out of bed for two days. I couldn't talk to anybody. I was that shamed by myself that this was my fault and I didn't go back. And this is, I suppose, the ultimate thing we have to think of is that patients will not go back for treatment or care when they are subject to stigma. 
Yeah. And and what Susie's describing there is the, the third form of bias, which is internalized weight bias. And this is the most damaging form of bias. It's where people who are living with obesity and living in the same society, exposed to all the same stigma and stereotypes that we all are, internalize those beliefs and have negative beliefs against themselves. And this has been shown in huge amounts of research to have very negative effects psychologically, as you can expect, it increases risk of low self-esteem, exacerbates psychological disorders and depression. But it also has physical effects. People who experience internalized weight bias have increased levels of blood pressure, blood sugar, cortisol levels, the stress hormone cortisol and inflammatory markers. So it actually serves to mean that they end up unhealthier. So there's this really still, unfortunately, commonly held view that we should be in inverted commas, shaming people into losing weight. And obviously this is completely incorrect. And all the scientific evidence actually supports the contrary view that stigma and shame contribute to weight gain. Yeah. And I was just going to ask you there just about how it manifests itself in society really. But what you described there, Susie, I mean, starting with the bus journey, getting into the hospital, nothing there to support your experience, you know, and made to feel that actually we have to accommodate you, whereas really the health service should be the other way around. So, Well, when it's in society, it's particularly hard because, as Jean said, the self-internalized stigma. So it came up in one of our support meetings one day. Why do we care so much about that nasty look the person on the street gives you? They're not your family. They're not your friend. Why do you care? They're a stranger. And I think with talking it through, we realized it's because it reflects what we think of ourselves. That look they give us. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it reminds you of what you actually believe at some point that you really dislike yourself for this state that you feel you've got yourself into. I actually really believe that self-stigma has stopped me following what I wanted to do with my life, what I choices I want to do from a career, everything. One time, a few years ago, the Eagles were coming to Dublin and I said, you know, they're getting on. They're not going to be coming too often, so I'll go. And I was worried about queuing the pain. I was worried about the seat, being able to fit in it. I was worried how I'd cope, but I went with my friend, climbed the 38 steps, couldn't barely talk out of breath. And the eagle started to sing. And I thought if I was 15 stone lighter, they wouldn't sound any better. I had stopped living, waiting for the day I would lose the weight. And that is when life would start. And I changed my mindset and I started living life and I actually had a better outcome because I became more positive. I started making better changes myself with the help, of course, of the healthcare professionals I had. But you stop living because you internalize that stigma that you blame yourself and everything is rotated around that. Yeah. Society sometimes reinforces that. You have that internal struggle. It's nearly a reinforcement of those negative thoughts you have. I think, unfortunately, many healthcare professionals unintentionally reinforce that with yeah. their patients because for a long time, we, again, going back to the idea of normal weight and normal BMI or body mass index, there was this concept that you had to be within a normal BMI in inverted commas, because really everybody's an individual. So we don't know what is the best weight for that person. And if as health professionals, we're telling people you have to lose eight stone or 10 stone in order to get the right outcome, that's reinforcing exactly what Susie's saying. Whereas if we can listen and create goals together that might be more modest, more achievable, and you really don't have to lose a lot of weight to see huge health gains. And that's one of the phrases we use a lot, isn't it? That we want to focus on health gains, not the number on the scales. 
I mean, I remember that I was told at slimming groups for years, you need to be between eight and 10 stone. This was before BMI was even chatted about. And after treatment and having had bariatric surgery, I got to 11 stone down from 25 stone. People told me I looked ill and one person actually asked me had I got cancer, that I needed to stop losing the weight. I looked too thin. Yeah. And I wasn't a normal BMI, whatever normal is. Yeah. You get fixated on these numbers and think that that is the fix. That is the goal. And when I get there, you mistakenly think that's when I'm going to be happy instead of actually living your life, as I just mentioned. But it is very unintentional from people. One example would be, and she'll kill me for this, but my mother, um, yeah. and she knows it, is that back in the time when I was at my unhealthiest, she would say, I can't sleep at night worried about you. But then I worried about her worrying. And we were in this horrible circle of both of us feeling miserable with them because I can't wake up then tomorrow. And yet I had lost and gained and lost and gained, tried numerous cognitive behavioral therapy, neuro-linguistic therapy. That wasn't the treatment for me. It took a few years to find the treatment for me. But when it comes from family, it's particularly hard to not feel angry because they think you're not controlling yourself. Yeah. When really yeah. you are trying. Yeah. That just shows how words matter and how powerful it is. And going back to the role of the health professional as well, where in Susie's case, where she talked about the excess fat, just about being conscious of the words you use. I'm just conscious there's a lot of health professionals listen to us, but sometimes you say it and you don't even realize the effect that you're having on someone. Yes. Yeah. And we have an example there where two of our patients, they went for healthcare appointments and they don't mind me sharing their story. Catherine went for a gynecological appointment and she overheard the consultant saying, unfortunately, this is a bit embarrassing to have to say to her it's her weight. When he came out to her in the waiting room, she said, but did you look at my scan? And he said, oh, did you have a scan? And she had to tell me, yes, I've had a scan. Can you look at it? And it turns out it was nothing directly to do with her weight. So she had joined our ACPO meeting that night and she was crying. She was really, really upset. And she said, I'm not going back. And we said, you are going to go back. And we wrote a letter with her. We wrote what stigma means, how it has an effect on the patient. And she wrote just two lines of how she felt. And he wrote a letter back saying, I'm very sorry for that. I didn't realize my words. And she did go back. But unfortunately, one of her other members, Maura, went for a breast check. And the staff member there was quite abrupt with her and said, if you don't act better here now, you need to move closer to the machine. Behave yourself, she basically told her. And she's 67 years mm -hmm. of age. And basically more tore under her breast and was quite in pain and left it distressed that she sat in her car for 20 minutes and wasn't able to drive. She was that upset. And she has said she's not going back. She is not going back for treatment, no matter how we can address that problem. We sent a letter for that, too. Yeah. But on the flip side, months later, Maura went for a physiotherapy appointment in the exact same hospital. And she realized she was part in the exact same spot because she remembered the shame she felt when she was last there. Yeah. But she went in and had a physiotherapy appointment, which went really, really well. And the words that were used were so positive and engaging and they were working together. She said she came out a different person. She got into her car and she drove home with hope. And now she every day does her physiotherapy with a renewed vigor of how she's controlling and looking after her health. And the difference in those two appointments just because of the way she was spoken to. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I was to have a couple of key messages about words for health professionals, I suppose the first is the idea of person first language, which I think many health professionals are familiar with other diseases. I first became aware of this back years ago when there was a lot of stigma around HIV and AIDS. Mm. And they spent a lot of time educating people on language. So you don't say an AIDS patient, you say somebody living with HIV because they're not defined by their disease. Yeah. So it's the same with somebody with diabetes. 
is so much better than a diabetic. So somebody with obesity or living with obesity, we don't say an obese person because they're again, they're not defined by the disease. Somebody has cancer. They're not cancerous. So using that kind of language is so, so important in the consultation, but also it shapes how we ourselves are thinking and feeling about the disease. And I suppose remembering and bearing in mind with our language, of course, it's not just it is words, but it's also our tongue. It's our body language. And that's where the implicit bias and exploring our own internal biases, because we may think that we're not <laughs> saying something negative, mm. but we could be conveying it in a different way. One of the pieces I'd recommend for people to look at is the five A's in the context of a consultation. And people may be familiar with that approach in brief interventions or uh, making every contact count on the HSE website. So the first A is to ask permission. And that always sets an amazing tone for a consultation. Ask permission to weigh somebody. Ask permission to check their blood pressure or to talk to them about weight. It's a sensitive topic, so it would be very much appreciated and immediately signals that you're open to having a non-judgmental consultation, that you're there to listen, that hopefully you're going to listen and guide or signpost, but not tell. Yeah. Just those simple things can help hopefully start it off the right way. And on that words matter, we try to shift away from words like battling against the weight, fighting this, because it kind of gives the impression that you're fighting something that you should be winning mm. where it's it's not. And we try even to actually move away from words of success or failure. What is a successful treatment? You are managing your obesity. So we hear about prevention. We hear about treatment, but we don't hear about long term management. Yeah. And that will include success and failure if you look at it. So if we hear people saying, oh, you know, I was really bad today. And we say, what do you mean you were bad? You weren't a bad person. Tell us what happened. Well, the car broke down and I couldn't get the kids collected and everything was stressful. And I went and got a takeaway for dinner. And you're going, it was for dinner. You know, you didn't have a takeaway on top of your dinner. You're yeah. not a bad person. Yeah. You don't need to bring that into the next day. But the words that we try and change, you know, you're not struggling, battling, fighting something. Mm. You're living with it. You're coping with it. You're adapting with it. And that's what we mean by living with obesity. You don't say it's an obese person. You're living with this chronic disease. Well, everything that brings and you're going to have barriers throughout your life. And what we need is to know when to go back for more help when yeah. a treatment might not be working for you anymore. And we know this happens. That the treatment failed. The person didn't fail. And we don't do this with any other disease. But in obesity, you do hear health professionals say they failed to lose weight. Right. As it, that it's the person's fault. Yeah. Back to that language. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Rather than saying that the treatment fails. So lifestyle intervention or some lifestyle changes were not enough for that person. They need medication. And then, of course, even though there's very effective medications available, it might not work for that person because medications don't have the same response in all people. So, again, it doesn't mean the person failed. It means the treatment failed. Yeah, that was such an important point, Jean. You mentioned making every contact count. Did you want to talk a little bit more about for healthcare professionals who are interested in learning more about this subject? Yeah, one of the things that was identified was that a lot of healthcare professionals who understandably want to do the right thing, but maybe yeah. don't know where to start. And part of that is raising the conversation in the first place. How do I start this off? It's much easier for me because I'm working in an obesity center. So that's why the person is there. But often, particularly in primary care, the person may be there for another reason. And, and it's difficult for health professionals to know, how do I start this conversation? So 
there is a new module on the MEC part of the HSE website called Talking About Overweight and Obesity. And it was developed by health professionals and patient advocates, including Susie. Very practical advice on how do we start that conversation and a little bit about the science and biology that I mentioned earlier, because understanding that I think helps us approach it in a more non-judgmental way. So both the background and then even just phrases and sentences, how do we start this conversation? Okay. So if someone goes on to making every contact count.ie, they'll yeah. find that module there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. So Jean, you mentioned the, the first day there about asking, could you just talk briefly about what the other four A's are? Yeah, the other four A's in this five A's framework, after ask, permission, we have advise, and then we have assess, and we have assist, and then we have arrange in terms of arranging a follow-up or referral. I haven't gone into a huge amount of detail there, but all of that is available on the module that I was talking about. And it's really worth checking out. Susie, you want to come in there? Yeah, because I think there's something that is missed between the healthcare provider and patients in that when somebody is referred, particularly about their weight, and they may not be ready for that conversation, the shame that you feel when we when we think about the self-internalized stigma. I remember myself, my very first appointment, I didn't hear half of what was said to me because I had this overwhelming voice in my head saying, how did I end up here? What are they going to ask me? They're going to blame me. They're going to say, you should have done this. You should have done that. And then I realized they're talking to me and I've missed half of what they've said. So it is so important to make sure that we know that that communication needs to be looked at because of the shame that the patient is feeling. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Susie. Jane, a new model of care was launched around obesity. Are things changing in the health service? I mean, even the fact that we're having this conversation, I think, shows the level of awareness within the healthcare system. And hopefully the attitudes are changing or certainly are doing an awful lot to try and change them. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like things are changing, probably a little bit slower than, than we would want, but... They definitely are changing. As you say, us having this conversation is a reflection of that. I think the beginning of it is five or six years ago, you know, when the clinical program for obesity was first established within the yeah. HSE, that then eventually led to the publishing of the model of care in 2020, which really is a blueprint for how health services for, for treatment and management of obesity should look in Ireland. So it's describing it. We're not there yet, mm. but already some funding has followed to start resourcing the services that were described in that model of care. So what we've seen already is funding of additional bariatric surgery treatment centers. So that's going to increase access. And actually already in St. Colin Hospital and St. Vincent's Hospital, we've seen a reduction in the waiting list for our bariatric surgery. There's been funding in the community for uh, multidisciplinary teams within the community and for pediatric obesity services in CHI Temple Street. And we hope there's a lot more funding to come because we need more funding to come for more resourcing to improve access to care for people needing that additional treatment and also to continue education so that anytime a person with obesity seeks help, as we recommend, with a health professional, that they are speaking to a health professional that has even some basic understanding of the themes that we're talking about today. Okay. And the 30th European Congress on Obesity took place in the Convention Centre in May, and that was hosted by the European Association for Obesity and the Association for a Study of Obesity in Ireland. 
That's a mouthful for you it there. Is. Yeah, yeah. We call them ASOI, the Irish Organization, and EASO for short. And, yeah. and we're working together. And then also with ICPO, which is the Irish Coalition of People Living with Obesity. And I think the important thing about all of this is that, yes, these conferences are on to raise awareness. And for me, for the lived experience, for somebody who is dealing with their weight and it's implicating on their life, two things were one was support which is what our organization gives for people and to is knowledge. When you increase your knowledge about this disease, the only word to describe it is a relief. There was a conference in Belfast last week and Professor Sadaf Farooqi was speaking on the genetics and the biology and all the work they've done on understanding how leptin it works in the body and the dysregulation. Totally over my head for most of it, but I had a moment of relief where I went, again, it is not my fault. There is more to this. My body is working against me and all I need to do is get the proper support, which is from my peers where I can chat about how I feel and from my healthcare professionals who can chat about my health. Yeah. Again, on a, a positive note, at that European meeting in Dublin in May, and we hear this a lot, actually, there was huge praise for where we are in Ireland. We're actually leading the way in the area of patient advocacy. So... Uh, Susie won't say this, but yeah. ICPO and Susie in particular are just lauded across the European obesity community for the work that they're doing. And I know as a member of ASOI, the Irish organization representative of EASO in Ireland, and Susie sits on our committee, we've been working together for many years now. And ASOI came on in leaps and bounds as soon as we started working with ICPO. So I think the work that we're all doing together and the work that we're doing with the HSE and the clinical program is yeah. is making great strides yeah. that people in Europe have really noticed and commented on when they were here. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's because you're truly listening to the lived experience. Mm. And when we sit on the committee with the SOI, it's not that we're invited to a meeting. We're actually sent the doodle poll of when suits you to join the meeting. Yeah. We are equal partners at that. And that's what's really important. We all have our part to play in calling out stigma wherever we can, in whatever way we do, whether it's as an organization or as a person. I was on Twitter recently and a doctor wrote something about morbid obesity and I said, well, I don't like feeling like a dead walking person. We now say severe or complex obesity. And he answered back, fair point. And yeah. that was just one interaction, but I think it showed 2000 impressions. Yeah. And this is how bit by bit we can start addressing stigma. Yeah. And I, I think that's even in wider society. I mean, I remember when I worked on the obesity conference a year ago and I won't name the media outlet, but they were reporting and it was a positive story about the conference itself, but they used a picture of a person living with obesity and it was a stereotypical image. It was quite annoying and I contacted the outlet and they did change it. You could call it an honest mistake, but I think it just shows how we do need to just constantly, like you did on Twitter, just call it out and say, actually, that's you know, that's the incorrect way or, or have you thought about it this way? Yeah, absolutely. It's back to that misunderstanding, really, isn't yeah. it? And we've many different ways that we're trying to deal with stigma and SOI and ICPO together have education sessions that we give to healthcare students. And last year we did 16 and that's across many disciplines and colleges. And it's starting where, you know, the health professions are going to go out and be working. 60% of people living in Ireland have either overweight or obesity. That is definitely somebody you know. And what we try to say to our group members is the way you're speaking to yourself and blaming yourself, would you speak to your family member like that? And think of the person who's living with this every day and think about your words. Think about how we can improve the stigma for them. 
And there's an image bank to use if you are, for say, any media outlets or anything like that who are covering stories about obesity. Yeah, the idea of producing image banks came about because of a study that showed that 72% of images used in the media are very stigmatizing, exactly like you've described there. People can probably imagine it's the typical image of the person's, often their head is is not in the picture, they're wearing unflattering clothes, they've probably eating a Big Mac or something unhealthy. And really what we're asking for is neutral imagery. Positive imagery is great, but that really, really influences how we think and what we say and do. And so image banks globally have been established and now ICPO have a fantastic image bank. Yeah, and I think not just for the articles, it's also to show people that people with obesity are just every Joe Soap in society. Quite often people don't get promotions because of their obesity. Quite often people are treated poorly because of their obesity. But yet we have a video that shows many of our members living their best lives. They've got degrees. They're working at high level. They, you know, they're successful in their own lives. They've just got a good quality of life when they're treated. They're no different to anybody else. And I think the image bank shows that these are the images that should be used when portraying anything about obesity. And from a health professional perspective, I think the constant exposure to those kind of negative images and stigmatizing images reinforces biases which mean assumptions. So when a patient comes in to talk to me about obesity, I potentially may assume that they're not doing any activity. I may assume that they have a very unhealthy diet, but neither of those things may be true. They could be eating very healthily. They could be doing as much as activity as they can within certain limitations that may be related to pain or mobility issues. They may have already had bariatric surgery and lost significant weight or tried a medication and found it effective to lose weight, but their weight is still higher in that obesity range. So the media reinforces these assumptions. And then unfortunately, many health professionals, again, unintentionally can make that mistake when they're starting a consultation. So actually, when we go back to the second A of advise, we should never advise without first asking and listening. So we should say the A not to use is never assume. <laughs> okay. Susie, just on that, I know the ICPO do an awful lot of work with the HSC, but also in wider society. And Jean mentioned it there. Did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, just even the words there that Jean mentioned when, you know, I, I was reviewing a document for the HSE and I think there can be a groan when I start because I get passionate about this, about how words matter. But when you read 10 times over that a patient needs to have a healthy, healthy behavior, healthy lifestyle, it starts to feel like you're being given out to. Yeah. Whereas we want to be healthier. So I was 25 stone. I got to 11 stone. I'm now 16 stone. Somebody looking at me, a random stranger will think, God, that girl needs to lose weight. When actually I'm at my healthiest right now, I'm at my best weight right now, I'm monitored by healthcare professionals and I'm living with my best quality of life. So I want to be healthier, of course. From today, I would like to be healthier in whatever way I can. But my healthier is going to be different to your healthier and different to genes. And that's what we need to look at. It's not just to be black and white and say, you need to be this, you need to tick this box. We all just want to be healthier. Yeah. Actually, I read a quote when I was preparing for this podcast. It just struck me what you were talking about there. And it was your best weight is the weight you can achieve while living the healthiest life you can truly enjoy. Yeah. I thought it was a lovely sentiment. Fantastic. For health professionals, it's really important to remember that, that that's what we're trying to support people to do. 
And in the support groups, the posts that you read the most are, I can play with my kids. I can put the seatbelt on and the, in the airplane without asking for the extension, which you're stigmatized because they wave it about at you. All of these improvements of your quality of life. It's yeah. not about yeah. the number on the scales, really. Yeah. It's amazing, actually, when you say that. I mean, as we've gone through this and you've talked about those everyday interactions where someone is waving a seatbelt, sending you to a different toilet, you know, because of the size of it. It's nearly like society is battling against you as you're internalizing, as you're trying to deal with that illness. And the problem there is, even though I've been a patient advocate since 2018, I can so quickly revert back into that self-internalized stigma in an instant. And I still have to work on myself for that. My partner was in hospital a, a couple of years ago. I was in the hospital from eight in the morning till 10 at night. He was yeah. quite ill. Yeah. And all there was in the hospital to eat was Danish and pastries. And on the third day driving home, I started that internal. Now you're going to pile on the weight. Now look what you're doing. You're undoing all your good work until I stopped and said, no, actually, you're in a situation that's out of your control right now. So you need to just think differently. And I stopped at Tesco's at 10 o'clock and I just I got in at five to 10 before they mm. closed, bought chicken fillets, put them in the oven, brought them cold with me to the hospital next day. And I was happy out. Yeah. It's just about adapting and coping and seeing the triggers that can be a barrier to you. And how can you come around that? But the first protocol was I was blaming myself. And what that makes me think of is, you know, when we think of what we've learned from other stigmatized diseases, we know that living with the stigma is often much worse than living with the disease. But the big difference with obesity and other stigmatized diseases is it's visible. It's visible to everybody. Yeah. So people are not only dealing with it potentially in a healthcare setting or, you know, somewhere where people are aware of the disease, everybody is aware of it. So just walking down the street, just, you know, and so when somebody comes in, to the hospital setting or is in a consultation and maybe they get a bit defensive about something. I know where that's coming from because of what they may have had to deal with just getting to see me that day. It's the most talked about thing, but people say, how are you losing the weight? Do you see she's losing, your neighbor's losing, how is she doing it? Nobody has ever come up to me and said, how's your HbA1c levels for your diabetes, Susie? Because they don't know I have diabetes anyway, but yeah. they would never ask you something so personal, but your weight, it's open. It's an open door that people will just ask you. And unfortunately, what we see in our support groups, people mentioning is when they've lost weight, people actually hold a door open for you and they will sit beside you on the bus. They treat you differently. We had one member, she worked in her business with her husband and she did all the paperwork and the accounts and she was in a head on collision. And when her clients would come in, they'd say, can I speak to your husband about that invoice? And she says, well, I do that. They treat her differently as if her brain has changed just because she has gained weight. And you're treated so differently in society. And I think we have to stop that. It, it shouldn't be talked about. Somebody's weight should not be talked about. Yeah. Weight stigma, you know, it's a social justice issue. Mm. So it is on all of us to try to change that. And that includes if we witness somebody being stigmatized, if we don't do anything or say anything, we're bystanders to that. We're complicit in it. So really... We need to all do what we can. You know, if anybody listening to this podcast, if they even explain some of what they've heard today to family member, to friends, if that word goes out and spreads, the more people that hear Susie's experiences yeah. that understand even just a little bit about the science, maybe just that it's really complex and then can maybe, as we said earlier, respond or take issue with stigma when they see it. Yeah. And it's really on us all, really, to just be a little bit more mindful and more understanding. As yeah. you say, you don't 
go around talking about other chronic diseases like that. It, it's not a free for all, really, in terms of talking about somebody's weight. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. We've talked about how the complexity of obesity and also the stigma. We're coming to the end of the podcast now. And I was just wondering if you wanted to share any final thoughts with our healthcare professionals or our listeners. For me, having the opportunity to get some key messages across to healthcare professionals, I would ask that everybody tries to explore their own beliefs and possible biases in this area. Understand how complex obesity is, that it is a disease, that it's a chronic disease, that we have to manage it as we do other chronic diseases. And that means focusing on health rather than weight. And we need to manage our expectations, our colleagues' expectations, our patients' expectations in what we're trying to do. And that is in supporting people to live well with the disease. And I suppose, lastly, just to be really, really mindful of our communication, there's a quote from Maya Angelou that I love, which is that people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you made them feel. So if we can approach every interaction with a patient mindful of how they're going to feel when they walk away from us, that's more important than any number on a scales. Yeah. And Susie? I think for anybody who has had this journey of excess weight, know that we understand you've tried over and over again, which isn't always understood, but that as soon as you stop trying to fix a problem that may not be fixed and accept it, then you're in a better place. But I think wholeheartedly, I believe that nobody can do this on their own. So whether it's you have peer support, healthcare support, but ideally both, that's what you need. You shouldn't be doing it on your own. And we're there. We're the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity. We have a website. We have a weekly Zoom chat with different topics. We invite healthcare professionals. We have Facebook groups. We have a WhatsApp group. So there is some way that we can help you if you need it. And sorry, your website address is? www.icpobesity.org. Okay, that's great. And Jean, we mentioned the Making Every Contact Count program. Is there any other resources you'd like to signpost? The other main one for health professionals in Ireland is the fact that we published the National Clinical Practice Guidelines for Management of Obesity in Adults in Ireland last year. And they're freely available online on the ASOI website. And although there's probably a lot of text there that people won't have time to read, but there's some really useful tables, there's some key messages and also key messages for people living with obesity who might want to check it out or or family and friends, that's heavily evidence-based and really internationally renowned clinical practice guidelines. I would like to thank Dr. Jane O'Connell and Susie Burney for joining me today on this really important topic. To all our listeners, we appreciate your support and please share this episode with a friend, colleague or family member. This has been HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing. Thank you for listening. 